Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Welcome to the show. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso, and thank you for being here. This week on the podcast, we have writer-director Janixa Bravo. Janixa uh, joined us to do our first live show down in Austin this past weekend. She was there not only to do our live show, but mostly to show and premiere her uh, directorial debut. It is called Lemon. It is incredible. It was the best movie I saw at Sundance. It is probably the best movie at South by Southwest. Uh, it is so good, in fact, that Magnolia will be distributing it later this year for everyone to see, uh, which you absolutely should. For those unfamiliar with Janix's work, she is, uh, for my money, one of the most interesting emerging filmmakers in film and television right now. She's made two incredible short films. The first one is called Eat uh, with Brett Gelman and Katherine Watterson. And the second one is called Gregory Go Boom, which won the Grand Jury Prize winner at Sundance, and it stars Michael Sarah. She most recently directed an episode of Donald Glover's incredible program on FX Atlanta. It was the penultimate episode called Juneteenth. To me, it is the episode of that whole show that particularly stands out, both in style and substance. You can tell it's Janix's vision merged with uh, what Glover had in mind, and it really is an incredible piece of cinema. There's more to be said about Janixa, uh, but we get into it pretty good here during this live show that we did, and uh, she talks about her upbringing in Panama City, uh, her work at NYU when she was in college, her incredible sense of fashion. I don't know if there's anyone in L.A., in New York, anywhere, any filmmaker, any person, for that matter, who has more style than Janixa Bravo. Um, this is a really fun episode to do. Thank you to the people who came out to watch our live show. It's going to be the first of many of the live shows. We're going to do some uh, at the Cine Family later down the line this year, and uh, we'll keep you appraised as that happens. But for her first live show, I could not have asked for a better guest than Janixa. She is funnier and more animated and precise with words than I could ever be. And uh, I think she's just going to have to co-host this show from now on. I think that's just what's going to have to happen because I really love talking to her. She makes everything very uh, enjoyable and lighthearted, but also raw and honest. And when it gets down to it... 
she was very forthright and I, I thank her for coming on and for doing it and I hope you enjoy this episode so uh, finally here is Janexa Bravo how you doing friend Good. <laughs> I'm here. I still have my, st- my stamp. My- yeah, I still have my stamp too. I figured I would properly shower after this. Yeah. Uh, you get closer. Come really. in. And everyone who comes in will just have them sit on the couch. <laughs> and um, look at that photo of you right there. Oh, thank you. We should be having like tea and biscuits and. Do you guys have tea or biscuit? <laughs> okay. okay, cool. Right. Somebody look into the tea and biscuits. So, you know, we're just gonna do this how. I do all the shows. Yeah, exactly. There's just, like, people looking There's this time. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys are here. Yeah. Thank you for being here. There's a here jury. At, at 9.30. Cool. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm shocked we're both here. Honestly. I know. I'm actually really impressed. I was very close to here, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was refreshing to walk here in the rain. And um, That's a good take on it. Yeah, people seem pretty decent at doing rain here. It's not like in L.A. where uh, this would be... This would be really challenging. People would be really challenged. Very scared. Yeah, it'd be like, what are we supposed to do now? Traffic jams. Yeah, there was a little bit of an altercation in the lobby about them being out of uh, umbrellas, and Mm. someone had a little bit of a meltdown, and I was like, Mm. they're probably from L.A. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They don't know how to do The umbrella meltdown. Yeah, exactly. Can we start uh, in Panama City? Because your bio... On that, you also somehow own Genixa.com. I don't know how that's possible. Well, there's not that many of us. We're a very small there's community. Some. They, they there are exist. some. They're young Polish girls, uh, <laughs> and I don't know that they're seeking that out. Why young Polish? Uh, b- only because the name is Slavic, and um, the couple of other Genixas that I've met, literally, I think there's 12 of us, and I've met them through Facebook. Twitter. I'm not on Twitter anymore, but and uh, and there was another thing like, um, do you remember? You're so young, you probably don't remember Friendster or like MySpace, but I, I remember both. <laughs> you do? I do. Um, there was in the realm of a Facebook. I'm like explaining a relic. Um, and on all of those, I've always had the lone Janixa, and uh, a couple of times, other Janixas had reached out being like, oh my God, you're also a Janixa. <laughs> and they were generally Polish. There were a couple Latinas, but mostly Polish girls. But mm-hmm. seriously, there's, I think, nine. I, I've seen them all on the internet. And none of those nine lived in Panama City, right? No, I'm the only one in Panama City, so I think. Your bio said part of your time on an army base. Yes. And pa- what does that mean? My mother and father are both in the military. Okay. Although when I was, when I got here, to life. My father was not in the military then, but my mom was in the army for 12 years. And so when, when, around when I was about three years old, she joined the army and I grew up on an army base, mostly in Panama. I lived in America for a year in the eighties, but Mm. what was that like having your "Mm." mom? Well, I'm just (laughs) curious. I mean, that's, that's not like a, a that's not a common thing. I mean, there are women in the military though. Um, what's it like having your mom be in the army? It's, it's cool. It's also... Did you process it as a kid? Yeah, I, I understood it. Because my stepfather, who I grew up with, was a chef. And so by, I guess by like 80 standards, they were doing maybe roles that were not exactly um, right for them. And so my memory is mostly my mother not being available for like like the other things that mothers were available for, like um, like baking, baking events mm-hmm. and like putting together parties that I always had my father there. But it made me actually really popular because my dad, Latin, very handsome, like 6'3", and all these mothers. So I was really popular with the mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt and they and were little inter- girls because my dad they was They pretended like, to be yeah. interested in... You, but they were like, oh, everybody lo- no, no, no one pretended to be interested in me. He has an accent and he oh. wore like cowboy boots and he would talk like these. They were like, oh my god, it's hard to compete with that. Yeah, I mean, his name is like Carlos Bravo, like he was like <laughs> really doing it. And, um, I feel like that's like an actor's name in a soap opera. 
Yeah, 70s though. 70s. Yeah, I don't think there's a Carlos Bravo now that's no. like really thriving. No, um, not that I know of. So, yeah, so I was really popular actually in like the, the mother's realm of things. But I do remember having this feeling of like, where is my mother? But also when she would come to like parent teacher, I have a really fond memory of her showing up like in full military gear a couple of times and people being like, whoa, well, that's They're incredible. probably intimidated. Yeah, she was really strong. She had like she was buff. She had you know like a six pack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what were you? I don't you... have any of these things. No, I, I, <laughs> I, I figured as such. I don't yeah. have them. Uh, what were you like as a child? Were you uh, besides like the moms liking your dad? What are, what... <laughs> That's what I was like. Yeah. Well, besides that characteristic, what else happened? Uh, 80s Panama. Do you know anything about Panama? Mm-hmm. There's a canal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really special. Um, there's a couple songs, I think, American songs about Panama. It was, I don't, it's hard to describe myself as a child. I'm an, on, I'm an only child, sort of. I have uh, half siblings that okay. I met when I was in my later teens. I met my real father when I was five years old. My stepfather introduced me to my real father. That was interesting. Wait, <laughs> back it up, back it yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I could go. I think the best way to describe like my my family or my parents is that I grew up with my stepfather and my mother and father remarried when I was thirteen years old. So my mom and dad, when I was thirteen, separated, and the same year my mother and father got back together. My biological father. How did that? Yeah, how did that happen? I guess they really wanted it. Um, I think it happened... Well, that is one of those things where they must have... There's no faulting. It's like they really must have wanted that. Yeah, they pined for each other. They dated since... The, or they, they, the first time they were in a relationship together, they were teenagers. And they were off and on for many, many years. And now they've been together consecutively for about, I think, 30 years this time. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah, I think they just always kind of wanted each other from afar. But my father's also Lothario, and he had he has had six other children with other women. Like in those breaks, mm-hmm. he really uh, occupied his time. Do you know any of those kids? I do. I know all of them. I met them in my later teens, and I I think we always really liked each other. But there was this dynamic of things needing to be a little off because. There were so many mothers, and I think our mothers didn't really like each other. That's a lot of moms. Yeah, it's a lot of moms. Yeah. There's a lot of energy there. But one of uh, my siblings passed away um, like 10 years ago. He was um, murdered, actually. And it ended up being this shift for us to like each other more and make an effort to spend more time together. So there have become like closer friends. I, I think it's still not what it's like to have brothers and sisters because mm. it's a little different, I feel, when you grow up in the same home as a right. person. But there are people who are more in my life now. Mm. Well, how are you making sense of like yourself at that age? Because in my case, when my parents like split up 7,000 times, I was constantly... 7,000 times? Like that's a, a little too they much. Came but, in, but they went in and out of each they, other's lives. What? Yeah, I guess. They were, you know, let's not get into that. You're like, you don't but, want to get into but, it. But the point, the point is, uh, look, you guys are all here. There's like four people. They, yeah, they, we they, can get into it. I mean, it. there's six of us. Literally, there's six yeah. of us. Um, seven. Seven, hey. Caleb. Caleb. Caleb counts. You're a part of it. No, you are a part of it. You're in the room. Man, people listening, when it comes out on Tuesday, are going to be super confused. <laughs> they're going to be like, what's going on with these people? Yeah, they're going <laughs> to think we're absolutely crazy. They're not that wrong, though. No, wait. So what? What is your? Oh, you want to get back to that? Yeah, I want to. Oh, I want to get okay. the seven thousand times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, they they just they just liked each other, and then they didn't like each other, and found new people. And, and you were a child while that was happening. Yeah, yeah. My question, or the thing I was thinking about, is how are you creating like your sense of self, or like how did you manage that? Because when the, when the parts are constantly changing. It makes it difficult to, like, be a teenager. Yeah, I mean, I think I felt sad a lot and very lonely. But I feel also growing up in the military, there you sort of, like, shifting. Your relationships or the people in your life are always shifting because people's parents, the children of military folk, 
they're constantly moving. They're not really, they don't settle anywhere mm. for more than two or three years. So there is this feeling of, I have this like sort of sadness when I meet people who, uh, they are friends who are in their lives that they've known since they were children. Because I didn't really, uh, not until I moved to America at 13 when I like went to a single school in Brooklyn, did I, I didn't have that. So I don't really know, and no one, that I met under 13 is a part of my life because mm. there is this constant movement of people coming in and out, which is incredibly difficult as you're finding your own voice. So I feel, when I look back at that time, I feel like my personality was constantly changing based on the people who I was spending my time with. You're not really missing out. On, on the zero through 13 I don't crowd. I remember those people. I, I mean, I don't. I but really you know don't. you'll meet, maybe this is like an American thing. I feel like sometimes I'll meet someone who's like, I've known him since I was five. And I'm yeah. like, really? That's so cool. Mm. You don't think so? I just think <laughs> I was shitty at 12. I don't really know. And I think everyone around me was kind of equally not. Shitty? Yeah. I feel like I was kind of interesting. I mean, I'm curious. <laughs> I wish I knew someone aside from my parents who knew me at yeah. that age. I just wonder how they would see me. Were you dressing better than everyone back then? I had then? really great style. Okay. I had phenomenal style. Because that, my mother... That's a thing that's like yeah. a constant... That people should be talking about my style. Oh, yeah. yeah. I forget, mean, I'm currently your, in great style. Yeah, especially today. <laughs> 9.30, I'm really killing it. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's forget your movies. Let's just talk about... Well, my outfits. Yeah. My mother was a tailor, and that sounds like the beginning of a song, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my mother was a tailor, and my... My father, my biological father, they were tailors when they were younger. And so uh, 80s me was my mother making outfits. Like I would watch a television show and I'd be like, I want to wear that. And when she was not being an army person, on the weekends she would make outfits for me and I would wear like an outfit from a television show and I'd be like, I wore this that was in, do you guys remember the episode? Yeah, that was me. (laughs) So it was really cool. (laughs) did Did that translate when you went to America? Uh, she made a few outfits for me when I moved to the U.S., and it was, like, embarrassing. It was not, <laughs> it was not the same. What because, does that mean? Is... Because in the 90s, in 90s America, uh, Brooklyn fashion was, like, Tommy Hilfiger, Nautica, Polo, Ralph Lauren, mm-hmm. Ralph Lauren, I don't know how you say it. That was, it, like, it's, like, early hip-hop style. And so coming from Latin America, I was wearing like really tight clothes. Like, and that's like a vibe, that's still what's in style. People still wear things really tight mm-hmm. in that part of the world and really bright colors. So I remember like this one outfit that I had um, that was like a label. Um, it was Gerbo and it was like a like tight red jeans and a red denim vest. And I remember being like, this is very cool. And I had red Reeboks and I remember people being like, that's disgusting. <laughs> um, so, so I had they to went up to my you. outfit. It was like a facial expression mm-hmm. that was not, it wasn't receiving Disgust. my look. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and people commented on how tight my pants were a lot, which was like an outfit vibe there, but not in the, because people were wearing baggy clothes. Isn't that horrifying? You moved to Brooklyn at 13. Yes. That seems like a lot to have. I mean, I loved it. I mean, I didn't like the part where children made me feel bad and I had an accent and I got rid of it, which is why I don't have an accent now. So that kind of stuff wasn't great. But the transition from growing up in essentially a jungle to moving to New York, I mean, I think as a kid... It's exciting, you know, the like New York City and what that is and yeah. tall buildings as opposed to like, I only now appreciate that monkeys were a part of like my daily breakfast routine of like, you know, stealing my food, stuff like that, that I thought was kind of lame mm. because I was so used to it or accustomed to it. And, and then the idea of New York and how big and loud and... Uh, sort of like violent it seemed comparatively was thrilling were you starting to create at that age no i was uh i used to run track and field and i was in training to i wanted to go to the junior olympics that was like a goal that was a dream and so i had a coach and i moved to the states because it was that was one of the elements to sort of like helping that part of my like young teen career mm. uh was moving to the u.s you were gonna run Yeah, I used to do 100 meter, 200 meter, and um, I did hurdles as well. Um, How did that pan out? uh, 
It's great because I'm sitting here. Um, so I think it really worked out my track career. I, no, I really wanted to be a track star. I like wanted to be Flojo. And um, that was like from very really young age, like around like four or five, I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to run. And so my parents created an environment for me to be able to do right. that. And it really worked out, clearly. Yeah. Um, no, I had spinal surgery when I was a teenager, so that when I was in training for the Junior Olympics, actually, and I was, you have physicals, and in my, like, second-to-last physical before going to Florida, where they usually take place, um, I found out that I had, I had tested positive for tuberculosis, so you can't really bring, like, TB to the Junior Olympics. Mm. Um, but they, they don't, they like, don't that's want not that. something they really want mm. there. But in my test for testing positive for TB, I, um, they'd done a chest X-ray, and you could see my spine very clearly in it. It was, like, pushed really forward, and it was, like, clearer than my, um, my lungs were, actually, which were, like, un- unusual. And then uh, we saw that my spine was, um, was kind of forward and resting on my heart, actually, and so I had to have spinal surgery, and that changed like the whole course of my trajectory yeah but uh, for the good actually because that's how I came to theater and performance so that's what made the pivot happen yeah I'd always liked theater and performance and I think at one point I'd wanted to be a clown not really knowing what that was Mm -hmm. as a career (laughs) um yeah what, what would that look like as a career me as a clown yeah I don't I feel like, are there black clowns? I haven't really seen that. So maybe I would have been really... Like, I'm not in the of, position to answer that. If you've seen black clowns. <laughs> I don't know if I'm in the position to answer that either, but I feel like I don't remember that. I don't remember it either. I mean, there must be. There's someone out there. That'll be my next film, actually. Okay. The journey, Black Clown's Journey. That, that'll be a hit. Yeah, like... Uh, but sort of like discrimination in that space, but then there's like face paint, so like you can kind of be something else, but people can see your hands. Deeps. That's like the giveaway always, his mm-hmm. hands. They're like, don't want that. Mm-mm. Don't like those hands. That's going to be good. Yeah, That's... gloves. That's mm-hmm. how he'll he'll come to gloves. I was worried yeah. you were going to sell out as a filmmaker. <laughs> and... No, no, I'm always going to make sure to like go to a place that few want to go to. That's always going to be my journey. Yeah. Was that true at NYU? Cause you, so you went there for theater and film. Right. Only for theater. Only for theater. Okay. Yes, I uh, studied theater at this studio there called uh, Playwrights Horizons, mm-hmm. which centers on the focus is design, theater design, so set design, uh, costume design, and then directing and also stage managing. It's sort of like the I guess non sexy parts of theater. If you're going to theater school to be an actor, mm-hmm. um, it's all the other stuff. Although there was an acting element to my studies as well. What was your goal in that program? When I went to NYU, I really wanted to be an actress, and I was actually kind of sad to be in that program because I wanted to be more on a acting track and. I had just had this idea for myself that I was going to go to theater school and I was going to be like as someone on special victims unit or something like that, like a law and order. Mm. I thought I would have been like a prosecutor. I would have been great um, in that. I actually could see that. You could see it, right? That's right. what I thought. Um, I mean, that wasn't like the end goal, but that was like what how I had seen. That was your starting. Yeah, I was like, I'll do like law and order and mm. then like that'll be my, um, that's then how I Then you'll become a regular soar. on law and order. Yeah, and then right. I'm going to soar um, as, uh, as one does after these kinds of things. But so I was... Uh, when you audition to go to NYU, as part of your audition, you pick the couple of uh, studios that you want to go to. And so I had picked acting studios. I think I picked Stella Adler and maybe Strasburg. And then when you are accepted, you find out later where you're actually going. And uh, the place I was accepted to or the program I was uh, invited to was not one of the two that I wanted to go to. So I kind of arrived there a little bit like arms crossed, Mm -hmm. but I'm so thankful. Whoever decided that for me, thank God. I think eventually I would have probably arrived at directing maybe, but it would have, I think it would have taken a while to get there and... That expedited it. Yeah, exactly. I got there faster, so Mm. that was good. Were you making stuff then that was like what you're doing now, which is, I'd say, fairly uncompromising? 
Yeah, I think I was always, I've always been a little unrelenting in my spirit. Um, um, that's that's why way. I was like, maybe that's, I think that's how I knew I was a director, because I'm unrelenting. Um, but I, yeah, I was always making things that were a little unusual. I mean, in terms of theater, the kind of stuff or the work that I was drawn to it was experimental, absurd, physical theater. And that just that that's the world that spoke to me and for for listeners uh I, to me theater is divided sort of into two kind of pockets there's kitchen sink which is like traditional long days journey you know like acting pieces and then there's like physical experimental theater which is um you know classics reimagined or original work but that the work is being approached from a place of like psychological gesture and movement mm. and sort of employing elements of like would be what seemed like dance theater and um, you know anyways I could go on but that's the space that I was always drawn to was that stuff what did your classmates think of your work I think that I was in a group of people that were uh, a little left of center also for the most part there was some opposition from the normos but the... Is that what we're calling them? Normos, yeah. Mm. But my community were, uh, which were, we were like four or five, and we were all kind of on the same path of like strange, I think what then felt strange or people were sort of referring to as strange because we were all pretty used to a certain kind of theater, like the theater that had attracted us to wanting to be performers or designers or directors in that space was pretty traditional. But there was just something about like our, you know, I think once you start reading of like the Brecks and the Artos, you're like, oh, mm. wow, it can also be that. No wonder I always felt a little strange or stifled in this space. I didn't know that there was this whole other language and we like ate that up and we're about like four or five freaks. Mm. Are you guys still close, that collective? No, no. No, I mean, we, we are and we aren't. Um, one That was a pretty definitive no. No, they're, they're still, like, in my life, but we're just separated geographically, mostly. One person is a filmmaker as well. Her name is uh, Leslie Headland, and her work is really not, like... Yeah. Her work is really different. She did... Um, she made Bachelorette. Bachelorette. And she made um, Sleeping with Other People. Not that weird. No. Her film work is different, but her theater work was always pushing boundaries and um, pretty intense and like sexual and aggressive and violent. She was, her oh. theater stuff was always pretty violent. Um, okay. I think she's going to make something violent one day. I think she'll make something in that spirit one day. Um, and then the other... My other sort of close friends, they're making theater in New York. Um, theater that is, some are making experimental pieces and some are making, I'm trying to think what that word is where it's like location-based that is not like, uh, it's not hitting me. Where it's like you direct uh, based on like the environment. It's called... Like gorilla? Is that no, no, no. It's like, um, it'll come to me like, five to ten minutes from okay. now and I'm just going to shout it okay. and, and know that that's what I'm talking about. I'll, I'll understand. Site-specific theater. That there is what go. I'm looking for. There you yes, go. Yes, that's it. So when did you decide to transition into making a short film? About six years ago okay. uh, was when I made my first short film. And I'd always wanted to be, not always, I would say like somewhere around when I was applying to NYU, I also wanted to go to film school. But they unfortunately keep those spaces very separate and it's really, they don't make it easy. To so, bridge. No, it's like you either want to do theater or you want to do film, which is unfortunate because it seems like a sort of missed opportunity um, in that even those who are in film school don't have access to the theater school actors. It's kind of, it doesn't make any sense. Mm. And so I'd wanted to do both, but there wasn't really a way. And, and then when I graduated from NYU, I wanted to be working in film, but it's just uh, unlike theater... You know, there t it takes more money to work in that space, and and there's so many more elements. I feel like with theater, you know, you just need a lot less. You you have like existing scripts, and um, and you really just need like a handful of really dedicated performers, and you can kind of do theater anywhere. And with film, there's uh, you just need more. There's mm. more people. There's a lot more. You can't really do it by yourself. Right. And so. 
I had wanted to do it, but I didn't have the capital, and I also just didn't know how. I didn't know how to do it. And In all of this, where are you meeting Brett in, in the time? Um, I met Brett nine years ago okay. on a... No, eight years ago. Eight years ago, we met on a commercial, mm-hmm. on a commercial for the New York State Lotto right. jackpot. So he came on the show in January, and he gave his rundown of how this happened. Oh, oh, he did? So, I'm oh, so then I don't need to tell it. Well, they don't know it, and, and, and your <laughs> perspective is different. I don't need to say how different. we met. Um, we met on a... So I used to be a stylist. So I always wanted to work in film, and I ended up being a stylist by way of this other director named John Watts, who is doing the new Spider-Man films. And John, who was directing right out of college, I forget how it happened, but like there was a stylist. She like quit or something like that, and mm-hmm. he was like you wear great outfits, can you be a stylist? And I was like, what is this job? And, uh, and he kind of explained it of, you go shopping and you buy clothes. Was that you... the only resume, is that you dressed well? Yeah, I literally got a lot of styling work because I, and I'm dressed not great right at this moment, but I generally dressed great. And um, you just, you like my I, outfit, thank I think you. This is good. It's like casual, thank you so much. Um, but I, uh, I, yeah, I got styling work based on how I was dressed. That was like my my resume was like great outfits consistently. And so I styled something for John and that was my first time and I liked it and then he went on to be a very successful commercial director and sort of like brought me with him and then he introduced me to sort of a collective of other filmmakers and I also just met other directors and kind of ended up doing that for eight years. And so it was fantastic because it was really good uh, kind of training and being on set and all of the roles and sort of like eating that space up. And my first short film came about actually through this play. I was directing a production of Strindberg's Miss Julie and a cinematographer friend, Christian Sprenger, mm-hmm. saw the production, really loved it, and um, was sort of like very aggressive about us working on something um, on film. And I had happened to have written this short film, and I showed it to him, and he really loved it, and was like, we should make this. I have a camera, and I have crew, and we'll all work for free. And this was Eat. And this was Eat, and, um, and I wrote it for my husband, Brett, and who was then my boyfriend and a f- uh, friend of ours, Catherine Waterston. Um, and so we did that a little over six years ago and it was invited to South By. And so that was my first time making a short film, a proper short film. I'd made something right out of college that was like debatable. Um, but this is a sort of first proper and it was something that I wrote and... Um, and there was like a beginning, middle, and end. And it was a real thing. That was a, it was a real thing. Yeah. Um, and a lot of other people showed up for it. And, and then we submitted it to South By. Brett actually submitted it to South By. And then we got in, and that was kind of the beginning for me of working in this space. Mm. Or rather, trying to work in this space exclusively. And, uh, and then, yeah. I pr- properly devoted myself to filmmaking um, about three years ago. Three or four well, years I think ago. it seemed like things happened around 2013 with Gregory Go Boom. That was the one that we have a clip for it. Oh, we're gonna show four but, four ladies. Caleb, for four, look at the clip. The Caleb, Caleb hey. and the four. Caleb just listening over there. Do you want to set this movie up for the, oh, so they know? So Gregory Go Boom is uh, the second short film um, I made. It's about a paraplegic looking for love in the Salton Sea. Ta-da. <laughs> You got keys? I think so. I'm making chili tonight. You got some money? Where, where are you going? Tom's. Tom, he's my big brother. He's 
lives one town over near the sea. He has a really good job and a really fast truck and about 200 friends and 10 girlfriends. Tom? Oh, he's, oh, he's our brother. He's bigger than me and Gregory. Um, he lives nearby, kind of by near the sea. Um, he doesn't have a car and he doesn't have a job and he has, he has 10 kids with 10 different girls. What is that movie about? <laughs> I, I think I just told you. <laughs> What's the heart of that thing? Um, the heart of that thing, um, it was kind of inspired by this uh, paraplegic man who I saw on a date with a woman, a blind date with a woman, and um, the genesis for the film. This was, um, I made this, I guess, in like 2012 or 13. No, I think in 13. But I had a year before that, I was um, out to dinner with uh, Brett, my partner, and his uncle, and next to us was this paraplegic man, handsome, um, I, he was like reading something. Anyways, I was really sort of interested in like his movements and his way, and, and he kept looking at the door, and, uh, and then in walks, like, I, he, was, he sat down at around the same time we did for dinner, um, and that's probably an inappropriate way to describe it, but maybe you don't say sit down. Um, and now I, this is like the element of how I talk about this where I'm not okay. Um, rolled in, that doesn't seem right either. Anyways, he mm -hmm. was at the table at the round the same time we were there. at the table. Um, but it's interesting because I do think there's something to be, like there's obviously like language that you learn on how to talk about um, everyone in an equal and even way. And Look, obviously I'm a, learning. Um, you know what? It's just, yeah, you ahead. forgive me for the roll in, sit down. Um, anyways, <laughs> so this lovely paraplegic man is sitting next to um, our table and he keeps looking at the door and like, 20, 30 minutes into all of us at dinner, this beautiful blonde English woman walks in and, um, and, and she's sort of looking around and then she sees him. We're right at the door, so she sees him and her eyes um, go wide and, uh, and you can tell that she doesn't know that he's in a wheelchair, and you can tell that they've also they're they're set up on a blind day, and um and and her face, um, the thing that her face does was really painful, and she comes in, she sits down, she explains why she's late. It was raining in L.A. actually, well, I remember it because it never rains, and um, she apologizes, and then she also says she can't stay very long, and um. And then she just gets up and she's like, I, I have to make a phone call. So then she leaves and I'm like, oh my oh God, no. so much has happened. And then I leave. I don't even say anything to the people I'm with. I just get up and I like follow her outside. And, uh, and I hear her phone call and she calls whoever it was that set them up and they don't answer, but she leaves this message because they didn't tell her that he was in a wheelchair and she's upset about that. And anyways, she ends up going back in and, and, uh, and then these like two glasses of champagne show up to their table and... And she's like pleasantly surprised by the gesture. And, and she's like, well, I'm only going to stay for this. And, um, and he seems to be really funny. I can't really hear what he's saying, but she keeps laughing. And they're like having a great time. And anyways, we're wrapping up our dinner. And they're like onto like a second champagne. And then they order something. And she ends up staying. But so the film, Gregory, was about a little bit about like being on the receiving end of being looked at and treated like you're less than or sort of like a treating people like they don't belong or like they're invisible because of their limitations. So that was like the seed for it. So mm. like kind of about being on the receiving end of that gaze. Is that how the inspiration comes generally? You're like out in public and you see something and you're like, oh, that. Yeah, I mean, it comes from a lot of places. But I mean, there's like a well of um, all, most of the stuff that I'm interested in working on are about people who feel invisible or um, not heard or people who are, um, feel they don't have community. And, um, and I take a lot from environments, but it's also just, I think I got a lot of stories about feeling that way. So I'm just like, let's work through those. It's like my therapy. It's my really expensive therapy mm -hmm. um, is that. Does it help? Yeah, I mean, it does help. It totally helps. But I think um, the, there, I feel, I guess for myself, I have also felt incredibly voiceless or treated 
limited and um, invisible. And so continuing to sort of like build these characters that are in this space, it's sort of like I'm making a community of myself. Even <laughs> though I'm far more socialized than all of the characters, mm -hmm. I'm very good at being social. Um, but um, <laughs> I am more like well-received than the people that I'm writing, I think. I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, the answer is yes. You think so. Uh, so yes, but I, I'm kind of like writing and creating people that I feel, they're people that I sympathize with and they're also like elements of my own personality that are maybe the like least likable that I'm sort of like working through or processing in myself and in others. I feel like least likable is not a fair characterization of, of that. Oh, of Gregory? No, no, oh, no. Oh, of myself? Both. I, I, I think that's, I think, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, that seems that seems rough. But I hate the word likable too. But it's one of these like words that people use likability in regarding work. And I feel like it's kind of unfortunate because I don't uh, in writing the characters or in the 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 types, the personality types I'm interested in. I think that like in the world of likability, not likability, maybe they're not likable. But to me, mm. they are. That's not. Well, I think that's what your movies are doing, and it's so interesting to see people respond to the work you're making. It's like, you are, the characters are not likable. You don't think that they are. I think they're likable, but I'm crazy, so I don't... Because <laughs> I'm really charmed by them. I'm I, charmed by them, too. Yeah. But again, I, you know... But in the way that, that, like, I guess it's interesting... I, I was just having this conversation a couple of days ago with someone... Um, that had seen um, my film that I met South by with Lemon, and um, and they said, so you don't care if the audience doesn't like your characters, and that was their review of three short films of mine that they'd seen, and I was like, oh, is that? I was like, is that what that feels like? And it was confusing. I just said yes because I was like, I don't really want to deal with this question, and it's like so long, and I'm trying to get a job, and like I don't want to talk about this. But <laughs> um, but I was like, a journalist asked you this? Or no, a... no, this was like a job interview. Ah, um, yes, okay. I like I wanted to direct this film that someone wrote, and so we were talking about it, and I was kind of it. It was a hard question to answer in one sentence right. um, because that's not how I perceive any of the characters. I am, I, I Janixa, root for all of them and I'm charmed by them. And but I that's think a no-win situation. <laughs> because... Because if you answer honestly, you don't get the job. Right. If you lie, then you destroy your principles. Yes, exactly. Um, but I am... I guess maybe, no, I'm totally think, I do think about how the audience is going to perceive the work, but I'm also not working from a place of, I guess, satisfying audience. I'm working from a place of satisfying the protagonist and satisfying the world. And I hope that for watchers and viewers of the work, I hope they feel what I feel, mm. which is, you, you know, rooting for this person that doesn't necessarily have all the tools to root for themselves. Um, <clears throat> but... I guess um, the likable, likability, you know, I think that if you, if I were making dramas, I think that we wouldn't talk about the characters in that way. I feel like with comedy, there is, you are, you are kind of selling the audience a certain expectation. And... Um, and they're they're buying uh, they're like the ticket. The ticket of going to comedy is mm -hmm. like you're going to make me feel a certain way, and by the end I should walk out, and this is the thing that I should have had. And I feel that that is maybe not what's happening. I think that the the work that I am making, I think satisfies some of those things, some of those expectations from comedy. But I think the journey tends to be a little more dramatic or very sour or uncomfortable. And so I think that that kind of question or that answer becomes like, if you are showing up expecting A and then you're getting Z, maybe it is a little bit like, do you not care how I feel? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I guess I don't think of things in terms of likable, not likable, because like, for instance, this is a completely different movie, but I think a lot about uh, the piano teacher, uh, Isabelle Luper, uh, the Hanukkah film, and um, I think maybe that is not a likable character. I don't know if you know, listeners, women in the audience have seen that movie. I think it's fantastic. Um, she has a, 
she's not great. She's like going through a really hard time. Her whole life seems to be a hard time. And, and she does things that are really ugly. But I still am rooting for her because I, I think he presents me with enough about her that I have a sense of where she's come from and where she wants to go. So I still root for her. Mm. And that's what I sort of mean to do with with Gregory or with Isaac and Lemon and with the other characters is present the audience with enough elements of where they're going, where they'd like to go. And and while, you know, also the thing with Gregory that's awesome or that I really loved actually or that, that I was really into was like the idea of a paraplegic man who was a racist was really fascinating to me that you would, by what he looks like, you would feel, you would lament for him because right. he was in a wheelchair, but then he was racist, so you were like, I, am con- I don't great. like it's it, great but I want... It's flipping the script. Yeah, and so, like, and I think that uh, for a lot of the characters, there's this, like, they don't, they lack all of these tools, they feel like victims, but then they do things that are uh, really kind of tough to root for, but you, I at least hope to sort of bring the audience back in. Mm. Has it been a challenge to get work outside of your own when you're not writing and directing, or rather not like writing and directing? Yes and no. I would say it's less hard right at this moment, but maybe like a few years ago when I was making the transition into wanting to only direct, it was a little harder in that if like I wanted to work in television, for instance, I, I wanted to do directing for TV and I wanted to work commercially. And it can be hard to transition to those spaces when there isn't sort of like proof of content. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I heard a lot when trying when going out on meetings for TV work was proof of content. Well, you haven't done any other television, and I was like, right. Well, this is what I'm trying to. Mm-hmm. This is the thing that we're trying to arrive at, and <laughs> um, and also. For every person that had never directed television, like there was a moment where they had never done it, right? And then they were doing mm-hmm. it. Um, but that's what it always is. It's- yeah, it's always that. But I think some of that stuff can be easier for some people than for others. Oh. I think that um, uh-huh. I think that sometimes women have a harder time in this space, and I think sometimes people of color have a harder time in this space. And I think that sometimes when you're like bringing both of those to the table, people are like, I don't know about you. Can mm-hmm. can you can? Um, and so yeah, in that way, it was challenging um, but not because uh, I don't think it had to do with whether or not I could direct or if I understood humor I think it literally was like I don't know like can you just you Um, so that was the part that was the hardest but you did but I did everyone I persevered watch Atlanta have you seen okay well it's a good show, right? She made the, I think, the best episode of the whole. I'm thing. not. I thank you, but I think They're the whole words. series is fantastic. It's a great series, and it's I um, series. feel so lucky to have been invited to get to direct an episode of it. And uh, the episode that I directed was written by Stephanie Robinson, who is awesome. She, I think that is the only episode that has only her name on it. And um, when I knew that the show, ex- when I'd heard that it existed. I had sort of pressed my manager to try and get me a meeting for it because I thought, while I was kind of being rejected by these other shows, um, I knew the hero who directed most of the episodes. I was like, he's never done television. Mm. <laughs> and he's directing most of these episodes. And and um, and I know Donald's going to direct some, and he hasn't directed before. So like, like maybe I feel, uh, maybe they'll think that, you know, yeah. They'll have a soft spot for me. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I did, like, so many meetings, and I thought, I'm never going to get this. And then finally, like, uh, two days, uh, I found out, like, on a Thursday, it's like they just sent the script to me, and and I saw it was directed by, it was written by a lady, and then I was like, oh, it's, like, the lady episode. Like, I want the, like, sexy, like, guys in the club episode. Um, but I'm actually so glad that, I mean... I was so happy to have that, but I just remember thinking, like, of course I'm going to get, like, the one episode written by a woman. Of course mm-hmm. I'm going to get, like, the Ladies' Journey episode. Um, and then I thought, what am I thinking? Like, this is amazing and so spectacular. And I loved it, and once I read it, I loved the piece, and I was really excited to be in that world because at the time I'd only gotten to see the pilot because they were about to start shooting. And um, when I auditioned for it, and I met with Donald and Hero, and I read the Juneteenth episode, and I... 
I did like, because <laughs> I'm a really cool person. So I did all of this research for it, like about like the holiday. And I just did all of this visual research, like spent like 10 hours doing it. And then when I met with them, I was like, and then in this scene, it'll look like this. <laughs> like, got it. Um, and, uh, but I got it. You know, you did the same thing yesterday. Yeah. Cause when I go really uncool. Yeah, but yeah, I, I think you just got to own it, man. I just got to own I it? I just don't see it. I, I think because I can like hear myself talking about yeah. something and it starts to sound really unsexy. Um, there's this filmmaker who is a friend, and I will not say his name, but I love his work so much. And whenever he talks about it, I'm like, good night. It's like he starts to talk about it in this way. Is that this is, Spielberg? Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, he's a really close friend of mine. Um, I knew you had some connection. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're really tight. Um, no, there's a friend who makes really incredible work, but then whenever he <laughs> talks about it, it's it's like so boring. He just talks about it in the most boring way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and as he starts to speak it, it's like he's also going to sleep, and it just is like a... Mm. And I think sometimes when I am hearing myself, I'm like, I'm going to that place. Yeah. I'm going to that place that like nobody wants to go there. Well, here's something fun. Let's watch that trailer. Okay, cool. Leave it. Oh, happy Juneteenth! Oh, where is Craig? Happy Freedom Day! <laughs> Welcome. Atlanta, all new Tuesday at 10. On FX and FX Now. It's on FX Now, too. Super solid resolution on that. Yeah, on yeah, the yeah. There. Mm-hmm. You guys like no, that fuzz. Nothing but the best here. <laughs> nothing but the nothing best. Nothing but the best for our four ladies. That and episode. Caleb. What time are we at here, by the way? Does someone have. 10 20. Oh, boy. Okay. So. Wrap it up, yeah. Sam. Okay. <laughs> that episode, um, it fits in your body of work. And that it is uh, uncomfortable. Yeah, it was, it, again, it was that thing of like when I got sent that script, I, um, not having read it, had sort of decided my opinions of what I thought it was going to be like. And then uh, it felt like so perfect. When I watched the whole series, I thought they really, they gave me what felt like such a great episode for me and um, in the kind of body of work that I make and the space, it felt... Um, so right, and um, and I wasn't. I was like, "Did you guys? Did you know <laughs> that made sense for me?" Because um, it's also about race, and there's a lot of race in my work, and and um, it was also. I seem to shoot things in like really large houses. That I'd made a lot of work in like big houses, mm-hmm. and I was like, "You guys know I love a big house. <laughs> um, do you know that about me?" And um, and I I like class stuff. Class stuff is like something that I'm always really. You do like the big house stuff. I like big houses and I like classism. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very sexy to me. Um, people being treated less than. I love it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, yeah, it was just kind of perfect. Um, and it's such a special series, and to have been included um, in even just like a slice of it is a gift. Where does Lemon come in? Does, you, you made that before? Yeah, so I uh, directed that episode of Lana around this time last year, actually. Um, it started soon after South By last year and um, in Atlanta. Believe it or not, it shoots in Atlanta. And, um, and then Lemon, I directed over the summer from July to August in LA. And it was actually, it was so great to have had Atlanta too because they had like so much money and a big crew and it was um, shooting uh, 28 pages of a script in four days and it was really intense but also there was like such a big support system there and it was great to have had that before going to direct uh, Lemon because up until that moment I'd only ever directed my own Mm-hmm. work and 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 really small crews and really like not a lot of days and it was very it was actually fantastic to be able to step into someone else's work and established tone and kind of try to find a little bit of my own voice in something pre-existing. Mm. It's the opposite of Lemon because you have I guess I'm interested on set with you and Brett. How does that how do you manage that? Like being in a relationship with the person you're directing, right? And also the the what you know the subject material. Yeah, is not it's not like a superhero movie, <laughs> which is the end goal. As you can mm. see, most of my work is an audition I for know. that. Um, You'll get there. I'll, I think so one mm. day. Um, we had Lemon was our fourth 
time working together as me as the director and him as an actor. And we had had, luckily we've ha we had had other experiences that he sort of acted out. And um, I am not like a, I'm not a, I'm not like a, my presence on set, I like to keep set like pretty chill. At least like with the cast, I like to keep things pretty chill. And then like behind the scenes, there's like the darkness that you're trying to like keep away from them where you're like, <laughs> it's great. And inside it's just like crying and anxiety and you're like, this is a failure. Um, but trying to keep like the environment for the actors. Is that as, a like, constant thought that this is a Yeah, failure? we're failing and we should go and mm -hmm. this is it. Where's the nearest car to walk into? But um, oh so the, the on set, and, and I think this is not unusual, I think most sets are about keeping the environment sort of very cozy and cushy for actors so that they know nothing, everything feels like lovely and easy and smooth to them. Mm -hmm. And um, and then behind the scenes, there's sort of like the drama of um, making the thing and pulling it off so that it looks that way for them. It's sort of like parents with their children. Yeah, you, you really do create this... Um, it's like you're always... Um, th what's the thing where you don't want the kid to put the finger in the socket? Like you're always... Uh, protecting the environment for children. Mm. Um, I don't know what that term is, but you put a... Finger like, in the socket. It's... What do you call it? Baby-proofing, exactly. That's kind of like what an element of set is, is like actor-proofing. So that, um, you know, it's like you can hang out in this room that has air conditioning. Nowhere else has air conditioning. Um, it's like water <laughs> with ice. No one else is... There's no... People are like, where'd you get the ice? Like, it's like creating that environment for cast. Um, so having worked um, on a few other things with Brett where he had... A, We've also written together, and it was always really important for me in our working that, like, our relationship not enter into our work. And a couple of times where I had been directing him, he was, like, my boyfriend. Like, he would be like, well, I just... And he, like, acted out, and I was like, absolutely not. And it was sort of like going to the corner and, like, talking and, like, you know, finger-pointing and, like, this is not how you're going to act in this space. <laughs> and um, Would you do that in public or private? I mean, no, we did it. I think the last time that happened, we were working on this short film called Pauline Alone that stars Gabby Hoffman. And, um, and there was this like wide shot where like Brett started in a pool, comes out of a pool, dries himself off, walks across the lawn with this dog and then and then he has this conversation in this one like panel of a window and that it was a really long move and we didn't have a lot of time to do it and he was just feeling like very emotional and needy and I also find what I learned is that I would also give him the least like in environments where there's a lot of people I would find myself giving more to other actors and not to him mm -hmm. and um and I think he was just having this feeling of n not being taken care of and I didn't want to take care of him because I was like, I know you, like I don't have time for you. Yeah. And so we were both sort of finding like what we needed, but his way of acting out was in his like neediness. Um, he just like shouted at me on set and and no one can see this. I mean, the ladies can, but I like had just done, I felt like my mother, I just like looked at him in this way that it communicated like, really is that like the level of darkness you want to enter into in this environment because we can mm -hmm. and then he and then he sort of like tail between the legs I was like yeah exactly that's what's happening here so it was great because like when we worked on Lemon um, I feel we, like you generally have control over that situation yeah I'm I'm in charge of our dynamic but yeah. um, uh, and I love him deeply and he brings a lot to the table but um, he's a really nice guy but yeah uh, but yeah. I'm in charge of our dynamic right. um, and um, I'm you know we're both alpha but ultimately I'm like more alpha mm -hmm. I'm a more double alpha but uh, yes I working together on the movie was awesome because it felt like us against against the world of trying to make this. It took us a really long time to get it made. And for both of us, there was a lot to prove. And it, you know, we were proving like our ability on uh, so many levels, our abilities as writers, our abilities, you know, his ability as a performer, mine as a director, like that, that we could. It felt very much like a, a test of will and that we were capable and able and that we were also making something that we felt was very necessary um, because there was a lot of opposition sort of leading up to making the thing. Mm. We got to go, so I'm going to ask one thing. Okay. Isaac is trying to... Uh, I think he wants to be liked. He especially wants to be liked by the Michael Sarah character. Mm -hmm. And I'm just... This is all coming... I was thinking about it this morning. 
But yesterday, like less than 24 hours ago, your movie got bought by Magnolia. Mm-hmm. And that's like, you know, that was, it's good that that happened. Yeah. Um, I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited for it. It means other people can see it, aside yeah. from only people that go to film Who festivals. Go to film festivals, yeah. right. I guess I'm wondering, do you feel wanted now? Like, does it, did it give you validation as a filmmaker to have your movie bought and now distributed? Oh, no question. I mean, I think that the, this whole journey of arriving at being a director, um, the, the how I got there or that the feeling of being welcomed is all in the validation, right? It's like I made Eat and then it got into South By. Michael, Sarah saw Eat, loved it, wanted to work together. We made Gregory. That went to Sundance. It won an award. And then, like, all of those little pockets of validation were about the next, the next, uh, the next yes or the next opportunity. But there's like big gaps and holes of not validation. There's big gaps and holes right. of no's. So while Magnolia buying the film and distributing, like that they're going to distribute it at the end of the year, feels fantastic and wonderful. I also know that like I'll walk out of here and someone's going to say like some like horrible nightmare to me. And I'll be like, thank you so much. Um, like, I just think that that's a part of, you know, being alive is the sort of push and pull the, the, um, the rejection, the acceptance. Right. It's like sort of the day to day. So do I, do I personally, Janixa feel more liked and accepted today? Um, yesterday, maybe I didn't, maybe tomorrow I won't. Um, and I and I think that's a really great question because I think about that a lot in terms of like if you arrive at a place of or I, I think in terms of myself, like if I if there's a moment in my life where am I gonna ever arrive at being like comfortable? Like will I be financially comfortable, emotionally comfortable? And if I do arrive at that, what is the work that I'm going to make right. when I arrive at that? But I think I I don't think I'll ever arrive at that because like I just like read like one element of news and I'm like, well, this is darkness, and here we are now. Um, so I, I don't think that I'll, I personally don't know that I'll ever arrive at that. I'm, I don't think that, like, my, in 30 years, I'll be making, like, you know, Nancy Meyer-style movies with, like, mm. you know, solid kitchen floor plans. I mean, maybe, though. You already like big houses. I love a big house, and I do love a kitchen island, so, like, it's very possible. I guess we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Catch, catch me in 20 years, ladies. Mm. You four, you four wonderful, beautiful beings. Uh, Janixa, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Caleb. You killed it. Caleb, you're really the star here. (laughs) All right. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Well, there it is. Special thanks this week to Sarah Sampson for helping arrange. Shout outs also to our pals at South by Southwest, Elizabeth and Caleb. Without them, there's no way we could have possibly put on that live show. You can watch Janixa's short film work, Eat and Gregory Go Boom, on YouTube and Vimeo. We'll include links to both of those in our show notes. If for some reason you have not watched Atlanta yet, I mean, to get it together, I don't know what to tell you. Good Lord. Watch the show and uh, watch Janixa's episode, Juneteenth. Make sure you keep an eye out for Lemon, Janixa's directorial debut as it will be distributed by Magnolia later this year. And finally, a big thanks to Janixa for joining us down in Austin. People People who need people I'll be throwing this out on social media later this week. Uh, But our one-year anniversary is quickly approaching, April 7th, I believe. And uh, I'd like to know who you would potentially like on that episode. We're thinking someone from David Byrne or Ira Glass to my dad or my mom. So, look, the options are open. I'm I'm open to suggestions. So please do drop me a line if you uh, have any input on that. You can reach me at sam at talkeasypod.com. As always... You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting app. For more info about the show and past guests who've come on it, visit our site at www.talkeasypod.com. Our music this week is by Jin Sang and Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. 
Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer. And the show is produced by Nora Knight. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.